You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, amen. That's a helpful reminder to us as we continue to pray together as a church about how we can give to North American church planting through the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. I just want to encourage you once again to be praying and thinking about how we can all make uh, sacrifices for this important work the Lord is doing around the world. Psalm 97.1 says, The Lord reigns. May the earth rejoice. Let the nations be glad. That's such an appropriate reminder from that verse, even just seeing this video and thinking this month uh, and into uh, uh, these next few weeks in particular about the important work of church planting. Why should we give to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering? Why do we give to missions at Christmas time and around the calendar? We do so because we want the nations to be glad. We want more and more people from everywhere in the world to come to know the joy of belonging to Christ. Our giving is gladness giving. And I think that's particularly important for us to remember because of everything that we've been seeing from the book of Philippians. Let me invite you to turn with me there in your copy of God's Word to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. There's a basic truth in the Bible that is simply this. The more that we become like Jesus, the more our joy in him grows. The more that we become like Jesus, the more that our joy in him grows. That really tells us something about what God's purpose is in our lives by bringing us close and conforming us to the image of Christ. Is it merely that we would become like him by doing deeds like him? Is it merely that we would become like him because we talk like he does or because we think like he does or because we go places that he would go? All of those things are true, but the one I think we're all being reminded of, I'm being reminded of this every week, every day in the book of Philippians is that he is conforming us to the image of his son so that we will treasure him and find more and more joy in Christ. Because that is the way, that's the way that we glorify God. We glorify God by enjoying him. It's that way in uh, almost every relationship that we have. Think about just the ordinary earthly relationships that you have. The people that you grow closest to, the closer you get to them, the more that your enjoyment of them grows. The more that their enjoyment of you grows, the closer that we get. And that's, this is something that we want God to continue doing in our hearts. Well, let's consider this morning how we too can cultivate the joyful attitude of Christ. We're coming to a passage in the book of Philippians, which is probably of, of many passages of the Bible, fairly well known to us. This is one that stands out to us. It's the one that talks about having the attitude of Christ in us. But this morning, what we have a chance to do is to consider alongside that, what is it that makes Jesus happy? We're not only going to be able to see three key attributes of Jesus' attitude, which God intends to work and massage into our souls and hearts, but we are also going to get to see more of what makes him happy. We're reminded of this verse in Psalm 115, verse 3. 
that says, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. This is another way of saying that our God is so in control, so sovereign, and so good, and so wise, that he only does the things that please him. He only does the things that make him happy. And so now as we consider the ministry of Jesus Christ and his incredible work on our behalf, which we are celebrating, especially this month, that we get an opportunity to see what is it that makes his heart delight. And we want to have this attitude in ourselves. Why did Jesus have the attitude that we're going to see this morning? Well, for one, it's because it's his nature. It is his attitude. He doesn't wrestle with other possible attitudes. He doesn't wrestle with other options of how he could think about the world or how he could feel about his people. Rather, in his nature, his attitude is his attitude toward us. But also, Jesus has this attitude in himself because this attitude is what pleases him. He delights in having the attitude that we're going to read about this morning. And the beautiful thing is that he has given us, by faith in him, his nature, that by his spirit, he is living within us. And therefore, the same attitude that makes him happy is the attitude that makes us most happy. So let's consider three truths this morning about this attitude of Jesus that Paul wants all believers to have as their own. Here's the first attribute of what Jesus did with his attitude. First, we'll see that he condescended himself in love. Second, we see that he emptied himself in service. And third, he humbled himself even in death. Let's begin with the first. Jesus condescended himself in love. This is kind of a fancy word that has has long been used to describe the work of Jesus and his condescension and coming down, his incarnation into our world to become like us, to become one of us, to carry our sins and to die upon the cross and rise from the dead. He condescended himself in love. But this is also one of those words that is hard for us to really understand because we have applied more recently another definition to the word condescension or condescending. For many of us today, when you hear that word that Jesus condescended or he was condescending, it immediately brings to your mind a negative connotation that he's doing something ugly because being condescending is ugly. What what do we not like about someone being condescending as we understand it today? We don't like it because it is humiliating to the person who is being condescended upon. Being condescending highlights the lowliness of the person upon whom you're condescending or talking down to. But this is exactly what Jesus did, though in a different definition, in a different way. In the truer sense of the word condescending, Jesus came down in love into our lives. He, rather than making others low, condescended making himself low. Let's take the modern definition of condescending, the one with that negative connotation that comes up so quickly in our minds, and think about the pictures 
that run through your mind when you hear that word. When someone is being condescending, you almost without fail to a person in the room, the picture you have is someone standing over someone else, pointing down at them and talking down at them, talking down to them in a condescending way. Or another word that sometimes we use is to be patronizing to someone, to humiliate them or talk down to them or act as though they are nothing and you're above them. That's typically what we think of with condescending. We might think of as parents, those of us who are parents, the uglier moments in our parenting. It's the times when I have, in an ungodly kind of way, talked down and demeaned or berated my children. And yes, I have done that many times. And I need God's forgiveness for that. That is what the picture is that often comes to mind in parenting of being condescending to your children to violate someone's dignity. But that's not the only picture of parenting. If you flip that picture on its head and you think about the godly opposite It is also condescending. Rather than pointing down at my children, rather than belittling them or humiliating them or patronizing them, I could also condescend upon them by stooping down, down to their level. I don't do this anymore because the girls and the boys are as tall as I am, if not taller. They have to condescend to me. They have to come down to me to be eye level. But when they were younger, this is what we did. This is what uh, all of our children's workers in the children's ministry know to do, that when children come up to show you their picture, they've colored upon it, and they want you to see what they've done. You don't stand over them looking down, talking down at them. What do you do? You get down on their level. You talk to them eye to eye. You want to ask them, tell me about that. What, what What is that thing that you made? Describe it to me. That is condescending in the most beautiful sense. That's condescending in the Jesus sense. When we think of Jesus condescending himself in love, that is what he has done. He has not come down to berate. He's not come down to belittle. He's not come down to humiliate. He actually came down to be humiliated. He actually came down in a way, and remember, we're using human language here, and it it, it knows its limits. He came down to be little. He came down to our level. He became a servant of all. He condescended himself in love. Verse 5 says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, and this is where we're breaking down this attitude. Verse 6, who... As he already existed in the form of God, being God, he did not consider his equality with God something to be grasped, but rather it was something that he, in a way, and this is where our English language will fail us, that he let go. He did not consider his equality with God, all of his rights and privileges and position, a matter of grasping, but rather he came down. This is, the, this is the more historic definition of condescending. In the 14th century, the word condescending meant that God or man would consent or give in or yield or come down 
from one's rights or claims. That's why we're using the word condescending, because this is what Jesus did. With all of his rights and privileges, he did not consider them a matter of grasping. Now, that's different. There's a nuance there we want to be careful of in the way we describe it. What are we not saying? We are not saying that Jesus let go of his divinity, and he became merely a man. He didn't. The Bible is clear that that Jesus is the God-man, fully God and fully man. But in condescending into our world and coming into our world onto our level in order to redeem us, without letting go of his divinity, he lived his life in a clear display that his position and privileges and rights as God of the universe was not something that he had to grasp after all the time grasping to maintain it, grasping to lift himself up, grasping to make himself high and others low, but rather quite the opposite. He condescended. Paul says that Jesus did not grasp. He didn't see his heavenly position as a matter of grasping. And this is part of the key to having Jesus' attitude. Because this is what so often characterizes me When I am, in the ungodly sense, condescending upon my children, and sometimes you, others, it's because it's accompanied, it's driven by a grasping. That's me grasping to try to maintain what I believe is mine. Here's an amazing truth. The way or the path to gaining is not the path of grasping. It's actually the path of resting. If we want to be like Jesus, we can stop grasping after the things that we think are ours, that we wrongly think are ours, the rights or the privileges or or all of these things that we have come to treasure often in the place of Jesus, guilty as charged, I need God's grace to forgive me and change me so that I'm no longer living the grasping life, but I'm living the resting life. Resting in the one who condescended in love into my world, into my life, into my heart, and has taken me to himself. And he has promised that he will be the one that cares for me. Therefore, my life does not need to be the life of grasping. Jim Elliott, the famous missionary, said this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's that's another way of getting at the same kind of truth embodied in his ministry. And of course, he's an incredible picture of that, someone who who actually gave his life, condescended, and came, came into the world of others to give his life to them and quite literally gave his life for them. It's such a picture of what Jesus has done. Therefore, Jesus is setting an example for us to humble ourselves, to ask, and this is the first application of truth this morning, to ask ourselves, what is it in my life that I need to stop grasping? What grasping is right now keeping me back from my enjoyment of God? 
What was it that gave Jesus such joy in his earthly ministry and his redemptive work for us on the cross? It was not grasping, but rather it was letting go in a way. It was condescending himself for us. Therefore, these questions can help us to see where are the areas that I'm really grasping after things that I treasure, but they're getting in the way of my enjoyment of God. We all have them. This, this, is, this is what anxiety is. It's grasping. It's, it's the white-knuckled grip on the wheel of life, trying to control all of the details of my life when I'm not fit to do that but rather entrusting myself to the one who came into our world, gave himself for us, and is risen again and is in control to the very end. That we could move, we too could move from a grasping life to a life of gladness by resting in what he has done for us. This is why Paul is bringing this attitude to our minds, to the minds of his readers, because he, he wants, along with God's purpose in us, for all Christians, for all that God would call to himself to be conformed to the image of Christ and become like him. And this is the first way that we could be the same kind of people who condescend in love, lowering ourselves for the joy and good of others, and reaping in return a greater joy for being like Christ and honoring him in the way that we live. Here's the second truth, the second attribute of this attitude of Christ that Paul wants us to have. In addition to condescending himself in love, he emptied himself in service. It's another striking term. That first term, condescending, that's why we spent some time thinking about it. It's a striking term. It is pregnant with meaning. It is, it is containing so much truth that we can't just let it go. Here's another. He emptied himself. Verse 7, Paul says, He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but rather emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men. Um, shortly after seminary, I had a job at a graphic design place where we were making it's this little office in Wake Forest, North Carolina. It was right across from Shorty's where they have the red hot dogs and the chili that goes on top. That's one of my great memories of seminary. But right across the street upstairs in this little studio office was this company that I worked for learning some design stuff. And, and you know, we would make magazines, promotional things for, for clients and all of that. Uh, and it was just this other guy, Glenn, who owned the company. And he was very kind to let me come and work there. The name of the company was Kenosis Designs. And the reason that he named his company Kenosis Designs is because he had read this verse and he had found that word in the Greek and it had impacted him. It stood out to him as a striking term of what Jesus did, a way of talking about Jesus' work that, that captivates your heart. Because that's what Paul says, but he, Kenosis is the word, emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant. This is incredible. Now, this is like, kind of feels old hat to us sometimes because, you know, if you've been a Christian for a while, you, you become more familiar with the gospel. You become more familiar with what Jesus has done for us. 
But this is one of those things that we got to be careful not to let it get old hat. That Jesus took the form of a bondservant. He was born in the likeness of men, becoming a man. Put those two together, emptied himself and condescended. What an incredible condescension. Maybe this is one of the reasons why it kind of maybe seems old hat or dull. We, we don't get as excited about it over time. We lose sight of exactly the kind of distance that Jesus condescended. He, he, didn't, he didn't jump off the roof into the parking lot. He jumped out of heaven, the heaven of heavens, down to this world. An incredible distance of condescension, of emptying himself to become a bond servant. Here's another way that we could put it. Jesus went from a place that can't be any higher to a place that can't be any lower. Because he took our sin, he became sin on our behalf. This is what he did as a bond servant. He came in that way to serve his father, but also to serve us, to give us what we could not gain for ourselves. He went from the highest point to the lowest point, becoming a bond servant. And he did it by emptying himself, by pouring out himself. Another really helpful picture. Think about pouring water out of a pitcher. And you think about how it flows out into the cup. And if you keep pouring it, it just keeps overflowing. That's certainly one picture. Every day, I unload the dishwasher and load it back in. And though there are only right now six people living in my house, every time I do this, there are 12 to 20 cups, half full of water on the counter. And what I do is I go through each of them. There is something really satisfying about it, you know, but I go through each of them and I take them and I, I pour them all out into the dishwasher. I slosh all of the water into the bottom of the dishwasher and put them away. That's another picture of pouring out. Are either of those the kinds of things that Jesus did when he emptied himself and poured himself out? Did he simply pour like out of a pitcher into a glass? Or did he do something more haphazard by taking the glasses on the counter and just just lurching the water into the dishwasher? I don't know that we really have any earthly picture that could possibly do justice to what Jesus has done in emptying himself. That's by God's design. There's always going to be more reaching. There's always more reaching for us to understand what he did for us. Maybe one that gets at least a little closer is a couple of years ago in San Jose, California, Anderson Reservoir, big reservoir of water near Silicon Valley, was, was full and there were growing concerns among scientists of, of impending earthquake and what could happen if the dam of Anderson Reservoir were to break in an earthquake. It would suddenly flood all of that water out into Silicon Valley, enormous loss. So what they did instead was they drained the reservoir little by little. 
But even then, taking this enormous reservoir of water and draining it little by little is an incredible, I can't, I mean, I'm just seeing it on the internet. Imagine standing next to it or, or seeing it coming at you. It's this overflow of water, powerful rushing water over the edge of the dam, down into other places. And it just goes on and on and on. You think about for a moment, what if I got caught in it? It would sweep you away and it's like you would never be seen again. That's just a little closer, I think, to what it means for Jesus to empty himself, to pour himself out, to give himself away. This is the picture of love, of his condescension. This is the picture of his service in emptying himself. Paul Tripp, one of the authors of How People Change, the book that will begin in ABF in two weeks, says this, Christ-like love is willing self-sacrifice for the redemptive good of another without requiring the other person to reciprocate or be deserving. I'll say that one more time. It's such a helpful statement of Jesus' love and service to us, willing self-sacrifice for the redemptive good of another without requiring the other person reciprocate that love or be deserving. This is what Jesus did when he emptied himself. He poured himself out like Anderson Reservoir. He poured himself out in a surging deliverance of grace upon grace upon grace, love upon love upon love, sacrifice upon sacrifice upon sacrifice, and it is an incredible picture. It's the picture of a bondservant. And it is so magnificent because he went from the highest place to the lowest place. This is actually also astounding that Paul, as we saw at the very beginning of Philippians, would refer to himself as a bondservant. To use the same word, he refers to himself in the same way that he refers to Jesus, that he took the form of a bond servant, the lowest servant of all. Therefore, Paul is an example to us as well of what it can look like to take on the attitude of Jesus. But notice this, neither Jesus nor Paul in their emptying of themselves, Paul like Jesus, Jesus ultimately for us, became nothing. Neither of them disappear, but rather they give themselves like the reservoir in the active, continual emptying of themselves over and over and over again. Therefore, emptying ourselves does not mean that we disappear or we fall into the background somewhere never to be seen, but rather we are, we are quite visible giving ourselves away. Jesus is quite visible. Paul is quite visible when you look at the way that he does it. And therefore, we can also remember the role of joy. What are we doing in, in emptying ourselves? What are, we, what are we seeking after in Christ? We're seeking to be like him. We're seeking to know him. We're seeking to be made joyful in him, maximizing our joy by giving ourselves away for the gospel. This is why Paul, one of the most joyful people in human history, said, I do all things 
for the sake of the gospel. Because there is nothing more joyful, there's nothing more gladdening, there's nothing more beautiful, there's nothing more glorifying, there's nothing more fulfilling than living in and pouring yourself out for the gospel in all things. But of course, here's the great challenge for us. We must, along the way, watch our hearts. Because it's easy for us in doing these things and seeking to be like Jesus because sin is there and it's tricky and deceitful. It's easy for us to be morphed into praise graspers, or, or to empty ourselves and seek of grasping something else that, that we would like to have or something else that might make us feel good or, or having a certain position in the world that's always going to be a concern of ours. And so it does us well to notice the Apostle Paul is not concerned with that. His life is not a life of grasping like Jesus, but rather pouring out and giving praise over and over again. Therefore, the second application that we could see here is that we too, like Paul, who is an example of what Christ has done for us, can cheerfully with him pour ourselves out in ministry to others and the Lord, just as Jesus has done for us, to cheerfully pour ourselves out. We can think about that this week. You can look for those opportunities. Let's do that together. Let's think about where can I cheerfully give myself for someone else? How can I condescend and come down to love others, to make myself low, and all along the way rejoice in Christ who did that for me? And that brings us to the final attribute of this attitude we see in Jesus. It is one that is equally striking, if not most striking of all. It is that Jesus humbled himself even in death. In verse 8, Paul says, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Paul knows, and we know this from his testimony and his life, Paul knows and points out even here, as he does many places, the difficult reality that the emptying life The non-grasping life is also often the painful life. The life of full joy and satisfaction in Christ is often the hardship life. It's often painful. Later in Philippians, Paul will refer to his life in ministry in the same way that we considered a moment ago as pouring himself out as a drink offering. To be poured out. In the Old Testament, when a lamb or ram or bull was sacrificed, a portion of good wine was also poured out onto the altar. This is a picture of sacrifice, something valuable poured out on an altar to be burned up and to create, along with the sacrifice, this sweet aroma to the Lord to give Him praise. But but make no mistake about it, when you think about an offering, even a drink offering, the picture is one of loss. It's one of death. It's one of sacrifice. It is a picture of pain. I think that's why Paul talked about his, his life and ministry that way. He said, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. 
This is what it felt like to him. My, my whole life is being poured out and being poured out often in pain. This is the reality. This kind of humility that Jesus shows by humbling himself to the point of death naturally puts us in likely hardship and difficulty in life. Because we're talking about humbling ourselves in a relentless, merciless world. We're entrusting ourselves to a God who controls all things, but knowing that in this life, when you humble yourself, you're often not met down there and lifted up again by the people around you. You're often kicked down upon while you're down. But that's what makes the gospel beautiful is that even in the midst of hardship, even in the midst of the suffering of giving away ourselves for the glory of God and the good and gladness of, of the nations, even our own hearts, that he satisfies us there, even in the midst of suffering. You can have no more incredible picture than the very picture of Jesus on the cross. There is no better picture of this truth. And it is laid out for us in such beautiful color throughout the scriptures. I remember as a young Christian being just, my life was changed by this little book called Died He for Me, A Physician's View of the Resurrection. And this was a little book that I read in college, and it was written by a physician who basically worked through scientifically at least the physical aspects of the crucifixion and Jesus' suffering. What, what does it seem like that physically was like? What were the, the medical implications of being scourged or having nails driven through hands and feet or actually being placed upon the cross and what kind of suffering was there? And it just, it brought to light for me in a new way what Jesus had done. Something that was easy for me to overlook. It's easy to package up. Jesus lived, died, and rose again. Boop. And you just get it and move on. Rather than slowing down and saying, but what does that mean? What was that like? This book so brought that just in, in clearer view for me. To think about his scourging, to think about the, the, the lashing with the, with the cat of nine tails that was the, the leather strips with bone and rock fixed to the end and, and being whipped 39, 40 times around, the, around your chest and then pull back and tear flesh off of your body. It's not just being whipped with a noodle or a rope. It's, it's, it's incredible suffering. Or to have nails driven through your hands, most likely right here and feet, right through the, the medial nerve, so that, so that with the piercing of the nail and then constantly with every side motion of the nail, shocks of pain are surging through your body into your brain with overwhelming, overwhelming suffering and agony. To be on a cross, which the main uh, device of death on a cross was actually suffocation. Because you would hang there and you would have no way to, to keep getting breaths. Your body would hang and you couldn't breathe. You'd push up on the nails in your feet to, to get a breath and then slump back down again. And like some of the others who died just before Jesus did, that if they were taking too long to die, they would come hasten them by breaking the bones in their shins so they no longer could push up on the nails of their feet and couldn't get that breath anymore, and eventually they would just suffocate and die. 
All of this is an incredible reality of what Jesus has done for us in, and it's only in the physical realm. The miraculous, better way that Jesus shows to us and has even gone down for us is to give ourselves even to the point of pain, and like Jesus, even to the point of death. As Paul says, he goes on with a colon, even death on a cross. He's highlighting this, that it is a way that in Christ still gains joy and gains the maximum joy. The path of joy is the path of giving, not grasping. The path of joy is the path of descending or condescending, not exalting And that even there, what I've described about the crucifixion, gives perhaps even more color to what we read last week in Hebrews 12, where the author of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let's rid ourselves of every obstacle and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This is the race, looking only at Jesus, the originator and perfecter of the faith, who, keep the crucifixion in your mind, for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus humbled himself even in death. And why did he do it? Because it made him happy. We gave himself because it glorified his father. And in glorifying his father, he was doing what pleased him. This is what we want to get more of. We want to get a better sense of what it means to to live and believe and think and worship like that. And we have it all right in front of us because God has given us his word. The last application this morning might be this. Let us, like Paul, leverage every experience of suffering we can. This does not mean that we're gluttons for punishment. We're welcoming suffering. Let's try to get ourselves in some trouble and some suffering. That's not, that's not the attitude of Christ. That's not the attitude of Paul. But knowing that when we live for Christ, we too will, will feel the hardship and the, the hard realities of this life, that we leverage every experience of suffering for the joy of joining Jesus in what he has done for us. That we would see ourselves in him, that we would become more like him in these important ways because he condescended himself in love. He emptied himself in service and he humbled himself in death and then rose again so that we could be like him. He is, for those reasons, our sovereign our wise, our good, and our happy God. Because our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Please stand with me as we prepare to sing again. We pray and ask God to help us in this. It could be that you're here this morning that you need to come to Christ first and foremost so that you can begin to understand the, the true reality of joy in Christ. 
this be your, or your moment that you would call out to him and commit your life to him, that you would repent of your sin and place all of your trust in him and then join us. Let us know about that so that we can walk with you. We can learn from you and you will learn from us and we can all grow together. That's our desire. And as we all look forward to Good Friday and Easter Sunday, let's make sure that these truths are on our hearts and minds regularly. I know that all the things, the jobs, the shuttling, the kids, the troubles and cares of the world drive these things away. But if there's ever something for us to grasp after, it's to grasp after that, to let go of the world and grasp after these truths that fill our hearts with joy and give us opportunity to glorify God. Let's pray. Our Father, you are sovereign, wise, and good, and you do whatever you please. Everything you does brings you happiness and joy. We want to glorify you, and we want to know more of that. We want to know more of the joy that is ours in Christ. And we pray that you would take these important passages of Scripture and, and, and work them into our souls so that we could, we could understand more what it means to be like Christ and to follow you and to rejoice in you. We pray that you would help us to pour ourselves out in the ways that you call us to, that we could, we could be used by you in the lives of others, especially as Good Friday and Easter come. Please, please cause others to join us so that they could, they could hear the good news of your grace that we've heard and has changed our lives. We, we pray that you would do great work that only you can do. And when we look at it, we will say, God has done this for us. He is the one who loves us. He is the one who is, who is ever serving in our midst. And he is the one who has humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross for us. And we want to praise you for that and pray for these things to happen. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.